guest this time is Max Haven. We're going to be talking about the chaos brought on by COVID and the kind of everyday chaos of finance capitalism. But first, I was hoping, Max, that you would introduce yourself, if you don't mind. All right. Well, my name is Max Haven, and I work as Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice at Lakehead University in on Anishinaabe territory on the north shore of Lake Superior in what is currently known as Ontario and the city of Thunder Bay. And uh, right now, I'm also a visiting scholar at the Institute for Advanced Study at the University College of London. And uh, in addition to that, I co-direct along with my partner, Cassie Thornton, the Reimagining Value Action Lab, which is a workshop for the radical imagination, social justice and decolonization in Thunder Bay, uh, but active around the world. And I write on a lot of different topics, uh, mostly having to do with the imagination, sometimes speaking about finance, financialization and capitalism, uh, sometimes speaking about social movements. Uh, but my latest book, which is coming out in May, is called Revenge Capitalism, The uh, Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital and the Settling of Unpayable Debts. Thanks, Max. I definitely want to talk about the ideas in your latest book, but I was hoping we could start by going back for a second to what I think is a core problem. I think right now one of the challenges that communicators like you face is the challenge of framing the complexity of financial markets to the so-called average citizen. It can't be easy to try to give people a different causal framework for our current recession than the one they're getting. You know, it's caused by COVID-19, but there have been other prior financial crises and you're giving them a different causal framework that I think moves us past more digestible representations of, of Wall Street that tend to want to glamorize or excuse its actors. Why is it hard to convey this point about the structure of the system that the individual actor is, as you write, just the last locus of a whole set of landscapes that create what we call financial markets? That's a great question. Um, I guess there's a number of different different points uh, that I would bring up here. The first is that the exact same forces that have created a world beholden to the dictates and power structures of finance capital have also attacked uh, society's capacity to understand structures and systems. So we have, for instance, the financialization of many, many spheres of the economy, but including, for instance, news, including publishing, including culture and media, including film, television, including fiction. Um, and that force of sort of neoliberal capitalist pressure, I think, has meant that there's been a gravitation over the last century or more away from uh, supporting the development of frameworks of storytelling and sense-making that would allow us to see and have terms for understanding structures and systems, and increasingly towards ones that fixate on individuals, and a specific type of individual, which is essentially, uh, whether they're involved in the spheres of economics or not, uh, homo economicus, which is to say the self-empowered, competitive individual who strikes out in the world and seeks their fortune, which is ultimately the hero of practically every Hollywood film, whether it's a romantic comedy or a superhero movie or a zombie movie or what have you. We have this idea that individuals make 
the world and not societies and not communities. And in fact, societies and communities are inhibitions or barriers or uh, problems for the individual. So in a certain sense, the financialization of our main technologies of storytelling have robbed us of the ability to tell better stories about the forces that impact our lives. The second thing I would say is that um, the, the financial system is very, on the one hand very, very complex, on the other hand very, very simple. The simple side of it is it's just the latest mechanism by which the wealthy and the powerful continue to entrench and defend their wealth and power uh, and basically create an ideological structure that makes the vast majority of us who are not enriched or empowered by that system think it's our fault for our failures. Uh, you know, the financial system, realistically, if you don't count people's uh, investments in their pension plans, somewhere in the range of only 5 to 10% of even the richest societies on earth, like Canada, the United States, have any meaningful investment in stock markets. So the financial system is really there to enrich a very small percentage of the population. And of those 5 to 10%, only the 1% of that smaller percent of society is actually really like raking in the big bucks. So this idea that you know somehow the stock market is a reflection of society and and you know we all have a share in it and a stake in it is is deeply mistaken. In real in real terms, if we looked at the financial system from Mars, it would essentially look like a, a plot by which the wealthy and powerful defend their privilege and power. That said. Uh, I am among those critics who have tried to suggest that finance and financialization isn't just and can't simply be reduced to this kind of scheme or plot of the rich and powerful to fox the rest of us and and uh, and sort of create a glamorous representation of their own class reproduction. I've been among those very much inspired by my uh, late uh, advisor Randy Martin, who is a professor at New York University, to say that in fact financialization is something that relies upon a fundamental transformation of society, a fundamental transformation of everyday life, and a fundamental transformation of the subject and its communicative and uh, connective capacities. Uh, and you know, Martin was uh, was also a scholar of contemporary dance, so he looked at the way in which this was making itself felt. Uh, both in professional artistic dance, but also in the, the sort of quotidian or everyday forms of movement that people were practicing. So things like skateboarding or um, uh, beatboxing and hip-hop dance in, in streets in, in gentrifying and financialized cities. I've looked at it in terms of popular culture, in terms of children's play with certain games like the Pokemon franchise, uh, I've looked at it in popular film and what that speaks to, what, what financialized representations speak to in us. And my argument, along with a number of other scholars, has been that financialization also relies on this transformation of us at a deep and fundamental level that makes each of us seek to kind of reconfigure or reimagine ourselves as an investor, as a speculator, uh, and that this feels to us not as something that's been imposed from above, but actually as a form of empowerment that, you know, our desire to, for instance, I, I always use this example with students to, to transform education from a sort of public good to a private investment where students are told that they should be investing in their future 
that they should be looking towards future prospects constantly, that they should be seeking to leverage their hobbies and interests and passions and relationships into future beneficial financial outcomes. That sold to us as essentially a form of personal empowerment through competition, rather than what it actually is, which is the kind of unfolding of uh, an atomized dystopia, where essentially we all become cogs in a financial machine, but cogs that use their imaginative and creative capacities in order to try and better fit into that machine. And so I think that's also what makes it difficult to see the structural and the systemic, is that we're all so caught up in it, and our imaginations are so caught up in this financialized system and so uh, recalibrated by the financial system in which we've sort of stewed um, that a lot of our capacities to imagine are already preoccupied. And that includes our, uh, our possibility of imagining that things could be different, that we could together through some way change the world. Now, the final thing I'll say is that the, the great irony here is that the financialized system, though of course it's dominated by a handful of very, very powerful institutions and individuals, uh, does rely on all of our participation. It is on a certain level a kind of refraction of our collective imagination. And so there's a question of if we could reorient our imaginations, if we could, if we could work together in a different way, if we could harness this power in a different way, maybe we would be able to generate not only a different society, but the kind of society that we've never imagined before. I like that you give us this historical perspective on the stock market that says it basically transforms rather than reflects society, and in this very complex, deep-seated way. Uh, at the level of culture and our values. This is really part of your work. You argue that the, quote, surreal visualization and aesthetic chaos of the stock market gets missed and ignored if we buy into the idea of the, quote, antiseptic rationality of the market. Uh, we could jump ahead here to, I don't know, our conversation about COVID-19 specifically and how this focus on the health of the stock market tends to limit our imagination in responding to this outbreak, but did you want to expand on your point that financial markets represent a form of surreal visualization that is in some sense imposed on society? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe it will help us discuss the current outbreak in a certain sense because um, it, it, to, just to follow on my previous comments, I think what we are lacking increasingly uh, in an age of financialization are good methods to discuss our own collective power, vulnerability, and mutual contingency. So there is something in the, the kind of hegemonic or dominant um, idea of the market, sort of capital T, capital M, that speaks to something that is true about our society which is that we know somehow that we all contribute to this thing called the market and that the market somehow influences and shapes all of us. And that's a very important recognition. Um, however, unfortunately, we understand that in purely economic terms, thanks to many years of sort of neoliberal miseducation, which essentially replaces any notion of society with the economy or the market. Um, and we do need metaphors and methods for talking about our collective power. 
and also our individual contribution to collective power and the way in which we as individuals are shaped by that collective power. We are desperately in need of that language. But unfortunately, the language that we're given in terms of markets uh, is, is a highly abstract one. It's one that is jealously guarded by a very small caste of sort of um, priests of that religion, which, by which I mean, you know, econ economists who, if anyone tries to talk about the economy without the proper language and mathematical modeling and scientific uh, pretenses, is declared to be uh, apostate, essentially, or, or a complete fool. Uh, but also, fundamentally, it's based on a deeply flawed and patently incorrect theory of human nature, which is to say, again, the theory that ultimately human nature can be reduced to homo economicus, this sort of competitive, self-seeking uh, subject. And there's a kind of evolutionary narrative here, which I talk about quite a bit in my new book on revenge, which is that ultimately capitalism is the only system that could save us from ourselves that you know naturally we're a competitive vengeful species and that only in capitalism are sort of natural inclinations towards a, a sort of hobbesian war of all against all uh, properly sublimated or channeled into market activity and that market activity even though some people may win and some may people some people will lose all else being equal, as our economist friends like to say, will result in sort of better outcomes for humanity. It'll re result in efficiencies. It'll result in technological advance. It'll result in better market solutions. Um, but this is, uh, I mean, it's, it might be an interesting uh, theory to discuss while having a drink sitting by the canal as philosophy. It is a absolutely apocalyptic theory on which to base the reorganization of global society. And it is unfortunately, that's precisely what's happened over the last 50 years. And now I think this, this crisis, this, this epidemic or pandemic we're in, at least in part, reveals how ludicrous that way of imagining society truly is. I agree. This is why COVID feels unique to me, especially when you look at it alongside other urgent, large-scale risks to public health. It's straining the public's confidence in an already tenuous system that especially doesn't seem to function in this moment as a means of saving lives by flattening the virus, as they say. Um, so I think what's different in a way is that this is a crisis we can't ignore, right? Most of the time, as you've argued in some of your recent work, poverty-driven epidemics, and that's what these emergent viruses are. They're epidemics of poverty and accelerated by poverty. They get largely ignored, or at best, as you put it, they're framed as threats to the future profitability of companies or to a nation's immediate economic stability. But this pandemic is exposing the fact that all things are not equal. It's not a random event. So in this moment, when a virus seems to threaten the very roots of social life, what do you feel people are gravitating toward as an alternative to the competitive capitalist model of society? I think we're already beginning to see that, um, you know, the state as, a, as an institution or set of institutions distinct from the market, uh, which have been entangled throughout capitalist modernity, uh, but still retains some degree of autonomy, uh, is sort of emerging 
um, and the state declares its job in this crisis to be the care of the population in a biopolitical register rather than care of the market. And so we're in a strange dream state of capitalism now, a strange kind of um, uh, interregnum. Uh, and, you know, this is the reason why capitalism keeps states around. They're very, you know, in, in a capitalism, if left to its own devices, would essentially do away with everything except the most repressive wing of the state to enforce property contracts and put down uh, workers and other people's uprisings. It keeps a state structure around, from its own perspective at least, in order to intervene in moments when capitalism can't save itself because its own internal contradictions and, and motive forces are such that it will sacrifice everything of value in its own sort of endless quest for uh, accumulation. So essentially capitalism has surrendered itself for the moment to uh, the state, uh, the capitalist state though, and the capitalist state as always that the gamble that capitalism has when it, it allows a state to continue is that states are also susceptible to the popular demands of their citizens. Um, so we have, for instance, elements of the state that remain of sort of the welfare state, of healthcare, of education, of social services, old age security, things that are leftover residues of struggles against capital by workers and other people. And the state is also susceptible to some degree of democratic influence by people. And I think we're seeing those elements of the state now uh, come to the fore. But the problem is that those elements of the state, including healthcare, education, the ability to communicate and maintain networks, the ability to intervene in a crisis, these have been extremely weakened over the last 40 years of neoliberalism. And simply the number of hospital beds uh, in most capitalist countries uh, if charted over the last 40 years, tells the story. There have been systematic health care cuts um, or cuts to people's uh, access to health care. And that's meant that compared to, in many cases, compared to where our societies were decades ago, we're much less well equipped to handle an, a pandemic uh, in this fashion. So even though the state can sort of come out of the woodwork and intervene in this way, its ability to do so is hampered. That means that the state will make, ultimately, uh, biopolitical decisions about who will live and who will die, uh, who, who will be let live and who will let be left to die, or who will be made to die in certain cases, too, in a, in a necropolitical register. Uh, and I think that means we're in an extremely dangerous moment. Uh, and we're already seeing what that moment looks like in places like Italy, where doctors are being forced to make extremely difficult choices about who will be given ventilators because the healthcare system, after years of cutbacks and austerity, now a decade or more into the Eurozone crisis, uh, has really done a number on that country's capacities to care for its population. Now, that's sort of part one. The part two is, I think what we're seeing, so, on, so just to summarize part one then, I think what we're seeing now is that uh, capitalism, and, and this is a point that has been made quite clearly by someone like Karl Polanyi even, even uh, decades ago, that capitalism requires society to defend itself from capitalism or else capitalism destroys society. So there's sort of, sort of self-defense mechanisms that capitalism has to allow within it, like, for instance, the welfare state or the way in which the state can sort of come in and suspend the market for a minute.
Uh, and we're seeing now again this moment. And I think that will lead to an opportunity after, during and after the crisis, to make more demands for the caring capacities of our commonwealth together, whether that takes the form of government services or something perhaps more horizontal and commons-based. Now, part two is that I think what's being revealed is that the market never cared about us to begin with, despite claims that it would lead to us all to be happy and successful and safe, and that the state increasingly can't be trusted in and of itself to care for us, that it's going to ultimately make decisions and has made decisions that are about uh, empowering and enriching the market and capitalism rather than the people. And I think what we're seeing in the, even these early days of the crisis is uh, yet another mask is falling off global capitalism and all of the claims of neoliberalism. The masks have been coming off for decades, but especially in the 2008 financial crisis and the bailout of the banks and the worsening situation, the lie that we were in an economic recovery when for most people it was a sort of prolonged depression. But now yet another uh, mask falls from the face and we see again that capitalism will harness all of our energies and imaginations uh, to put us on a one-way track to sort of um, social suicide. And so I think what's happening very interestingly is that at a grassroots level, amidst this crisis, as so often happens in disasters, people are developing not only their own means of talking about what society is and how society is different from the market and what it means to be a member of society and a member of a community that's different than being a member of an economy or a market. We're also seeing people practically experiment with new forms of mutual aid, new forms of provisioning for themselves and their community, new forms of social relationships. And these ultimately will be the bedrock, uh, the affective and relational bedrock of whatever systems are going to come next, whether those systems are provided by states or they're provided on a much more grassroots level. There, has need, there needs to be a kind of fundamental transformation in our consciousness and imagination, and that comes through the everyday experience of working together in new ways. It's true, but on the other hand, because of the shock, you're also seeing a global effort to downplay the need to fundamentally alter how the system was running. There has been this predictable corporate interest in limiting the sense of urgency brought on by the pandemic, and Donald Trump is only the most public face of it. Even the World Health Organization hesitated to declare this event a pandemic because of prior criticism that overreaction to emergent viruses in the past caused market disruption. So my question is, should we be worried about this kind of economic disruption? How can we think differently about this crisis? Do we want you know, markets that never cared about us to be able to absorb this crisis and just live on? Now, these days, my thinking is that capitalism, in a weird way, can survive almost anything. Um, and it's because of the particular adaptability structures of capitalism. The one thing it cannot survive is a mass withdrawal of its lifeblood, which is people's energies. So if everyone refuses to work, capitalism cannot sustain that because ultimately it is a system for coordinating and, um, and reaping the benefits of, of humanity's social cooperation. So when people refuse to cooperate under its terms, that is the, the kind of key thing that capitalism cannot survive. Almost anything else it can survive. And the reason is that in spite of how the system can appear to be in the hands of a, 
of a small number of oligarchs and a very sort of cloistered political class. Capitalism is fundamentally driven by competition. Um, so, in fact, when capitalism undermines its own capacity for competition, things start to go haywire. So, you know, you, you often have the question, well, why aren't more capitalist states authoritarian? And we are seeing the rise of increasing capitalist authoritarianism, especially in the United States or countries like India or Brazil uh, or Turkey or Hungary. Uh, but the reason is that what, what gives capitalism its force and its movement and its incredible dynamism is that it's driven by many, many different capitalist actors and firms and entrepreneurs competing with one another in order to try and capture market share. Uh, and from a Marxist perspective, not just capital market share, but what's sort of underneath market share, which is um, sort of social social labor power, surplus value, so to speak. But we won't get into the into the weeds around that. But as a result, what it means is that, like unlike any other system which might be beset by a huge crisis, like let's say a plague besets the feudal system in the Middle Ages, or uh, some sort of natural disaster besets a theocracy in some other age and epoch. Capitalism responds extremely quickly because it can rely on almost everyone within it undertaking competitive entrepreneurial activity in the wake and during that crisis. So we've already seen these sort of uh, hyperbolized stories about people buying up cartons of uh, toilet paper and hand sanitizer and trying to sell them for a markup. And you know, everyone's of course, castigating these people for what they're doing. I mean, they should be castigated. It's disgusting behavior, but it's not outside of the norm. It's, it's in fact what happens every day under capitalism. It's just the crisis that that produces nowadays is felt by everyone who, feel, who fears that there'll be runs on commodities in the stores. Whereas in everyday life, when we don't have a pandemic, that kind of uh, hoarding behavior, for instance, of, of necessary pharmaceutical drugs like... Um, like insulin or EpiPens, uh, simply is a crisis for the poor in our society and therefore nobody cares. Uh, but the, to return to the main point, essentially, capitalism is so resilient because even if it means that certain corporations over the next few months of this, uh, this uh, self-isolation period uh, and slowdown in the global economy, even if some major firms crash, even if some billionaires end up you know, homeless on the street, there's an infinite number of people who are willing to take their place. There's an infinite number of people who are willing to start new corporations. It don't mean a slowdown in the capitalist economy, but as long as we don't overthrow that, uh, that economic system and replace it with a different economic system, there will be new winners to make up for the losers. Unfortunately, that's not going to mean that society is going to be any better for it. I mean, I actually suspect that um, we, can, we can anticipate that the capitalists who survive this crisis and the major firms that survive this crisis will have incredible power, uh, both during and after this crisis, to force governments to implement even more neoliberal policies. Governments right now are borrowing trillions of dollars from banks, which as soon as the crisis is over, they will demand to be paid back. And that payment will be made by society at large. It'll come in the form of further austerity unless we fight back against it. 
you know, capitalist firms and individual capitalists and capitalism as a system will do everything it can to cling to life. But their life and its life means essentially our death, either fast or slow. So the, I guess this is a long answer to your question to simply say I'm, I'm a bit skeptical of claims that this crisis will do in capitalism. I hope it does, but it's going to require a huge level of mobilization on the part of society. And let me just finish by saying what that mobilization would look like, for instance. It would look like huge social movements that would be willing to shut down whole cities, transportation, logistics grids, uh, in order to demand that the cost of this crisis not be borne by the people. It would mean demands, for instance, that banks be allowed to go be bankrupt or be nationalized outright by governments. It would mean the, uh, the insistence that many of the emergency measures that have been taken already in many countries in the epidemic or in the pandemic be continued and be normalized. And that includes suspension of rents, suspension of mortgages, suspension of debt payments, commandeering of major industries and essentially public control of the means of production. Uh, it will mean essentially that there need to be massive historical movements that insist there will be no return to normal. Uh, and we will want to basically see in some way the emergency uh, become an opportunity to completely reconfigure society and the economy. I mean, to be a little hyperbolic, C.L.R. James uh, uh, sort of uh, once famously said in, in his analysis of the Haitian Revolution that the, the revolution isn't safe until the bourgeoisie are running for the hills. Uh, by which he means essentially as long as the capitalist class and their interests remain empowered and enabled to carry on their work, they will come for their revenge. Your books always begin with a very direct address to the reader, and I love that you stress the immediacy of the message. Uh, despite the fact that you're sharing a book with the world and a book tends to have these connotations of permanence, posterity, you know, you tell your readers at the beginning of your books that they are in the middle of a war, that you want revenge, all of these very timely things. And I wanted to ask you about how you think about tactics of communication. You know, Marina Vishmit makes this claim that too often one of the problems with oppositional engagement strategies the reason that they don't gain traction is that they assume the thing they're trying to produce, um, critical, oppositional, self-governing people. I guess my question is, how do you create ideas that are radical and relatable? Mm, that's a really interesting question. It's one I've been thinking about a lot, writing a book on revenge, which is a, a dangerous topic to broach um, because you know, revenge is a, is a horrible thing, ultimately. Um, and you don't, you know, my book ultimately declares that we need to uh, approach capitalism with a kind of an, event, an avenging spirit rather than a revenge spirit. But that distinction is admittedly subtle. And the last thing anyone wants to do is sort of loose the Pandora's box of revenge politics. They've, you know, they've done horrible things in the past. Um, I guess on some level, I, I would have, my thinking is changing a little bit on this, and it's changing in light of something I think we, we hope to discuss in this, which is the incredible um, uprising of the Wet'suwet'en people, and along with them in, in the Canadian context, uh, the incredible solidarity efforts of uh, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people 
for the Wet'suwet'en um, land reclamation movement. Um, and I think what I realized or recognized in that moment is, is listening to a lot of the younger people who were on the front lines, who were barricading streets and railways, a lot of the things they were saying were terminology and ideas and metaphors and frameworks of analysis that many of us had been thinking through and working through in the fields of critical race theory, indigenous studies, uh, cultural studies, uh, and sort of the critical analysis of capitalism over the last 20 years. Um, and I had before this time been very skeptical to the uh, idea that academic ideas eventually filter their way down and make themselves known in social movements. But I see some merit to that position now. I think it has a lot to do, however, not with the kind of natural flow by which ideas generated in the most abstract spheres of society, which is to say the ivory tower of academe, sort of naturally percolate their way down to uh, the grassroots. I actually think it has much more to do with a couple of generations of scholars uh, who have also explicitly and uh, avowedly been activists and, and social movement organizers as well, and have had sort of one foot in each of those camps. Um, and that, I think, has, has allowed um, for the generation of a set of ideas that are, are flexible, not doctrinaire, uh, but that actually give uh, some explanatory force and uh, some strategic uh, information to movements and create like, you know, real actual substantial connections between people who are trying to figure things out, who have the time and space and resources to do so in university contexts and other contexts as well, and those people who are sort of struggling on the ground. So I guess I used to worry a lot more about how to make that connection between some of the more abstract theoretical work I do and then grassroots struggles. And now, maybe I'm just getting old, uh, I'm a little more content to see how those things can play out uh, a little bit more naturally. And I think that then speaks maybe to your, the broader question you're asking, which is like, how do you then not only change the ideas of people who, for whom, with whom you have fellow feeling, you know, like activists and social movement organizers who are dedicated to concepts of social and racial justice and decolonization, but society at large. And again, I think that experience of the recent wet sweat and struggle gives us some clues as to what that might look like. Um, I was shocked actually to read of the incredible support for that struggle among members of the general public uh, in opinion polls, but also people writing into newspapers or commenting on the street in news stories. There was of course a huge right-wing reactionary backlash, which is can be predicted, especially in a settler colonial state like Canada. Um, which has always you know, been based on sort of a racist revanchism on some level. But the amount of support was also very impressive. And I think that also speaks to a level of literacy that activists and scholars and theorists, not both within and outside of the university structures, have been able to encourage in society at large. Um, and that's making me want to revisit some of my ideas and theories about how these things connect to one another. Because I don't, again, I don't want to sort of echo this idea that it sort of happens in any way automatically or naturally. Uh, I think it happens through specific ways, but maybe those ways are changing.
Now, the final thing I'll say is that um, on this on this topic, at least, is that I think we are now in a brave new world, uh, which you yourself are experimenting with here with this podcast, uh, whereby theorists, so to speak, can engage with the public on unprecedented levels. And I think we've seen a first wave of that, uh, which was really dominated by the far right, by the likes of, you know, Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro or Breitbart News or, you know, this uh, Alex Jones, the whole right wing media sphere, which is literally toppled governments and also empowered and enraged murderous politics, you know, mass shooters, for instance, who get addicted essentially to this material and then use it as a justification for basically taking their revenge on society, uh, which is horrifying. Uh, I think what we're seeing even in the last few years is that the dial is maybe turning back in a certain direction and we're beginning to see uh, those who have an interest in decolonization and racial and social justice begin to retake some ground and develop interesting ways of reaching people. Uh, but that I think is still very much in its infancy. And the question for me is how do you imbue it YouTube clip or a podcast with the kind of rigor and tolerance for ambiguity and imperative for hard, difficult thinking that the, the, the text has and the book and the, the, the sort of essay has afforded us throughout modernity. Uh, and I think that's going to be a big challenge uh, in the years to come. That is really my hope for the podcast, is that it will speak to issues that I care about and give people who I think have important things to say and even important things to say about how to say things an opportunity to say them. Uh, and on that point of strategic communication, in your new book on revenge capitalism, you talk about the many ways that revenge has manifested itself in popular culture. You're also theorizing the ways that revenge is a symptom and part of the structure of society. The sense I get is that the reason you want to risk revenge as a metaphor, since it's kind of a dangerously violent one, is that it comes from just a sincere rage at dispossession. Is, is that what has led you to demand what you call a holistic avenging of crimes and cruelties? You know, what, is, what exactly does this idea of revenge mean to you? Well, I guess in the book I try and do two things with revenge. Um, and I'm not, you know, between us and all your listeners uh, and posterity of the internet, I'm, they're, they're very experimental, let me say that. And I have my misgivings about them. But I think it's a worthwhile thought experiment. Um, so one of the things I'm trying to do with revenge is to say, actually, you know, we, and as I alluded to in our, er, in, earlier in our conversation, capitalism has its own mythology of itself, sort of the liberal capitalist norm, is that it is the final conquest of revenge by humanity. And the story goes something like this, you know, ever since Cain and Abel or since our imagined prehistory, there's been this kind of vengeful spirit that has animated and, um, and really uh, hampered human development. Uh, and that ultimately, in order to overcome our propensity to revenge ourselves against each other uh, for minor or major infractions, we 
uh, assign or accede to the rule of some sort of sovereign, a king, a ruler of some sort. And that king or ruler then uh, takes revenge out of our hands and says, I will decide. Justice is mine. I will decide who is right and who is wrong. Um, and that the problem with that is that, of course, the ruler is not, there's no such thing as an impartial fair ruler. They're always interested in perpetuating their power and wealth. And so they begin to take their own revenge on their subjects. And the argument is that, well, finally, after thousands of years of human culture, we have a system that allows us to channel our naturally vengeful and acquisitive inclinations uh, into something that's going to be better for everyone. So if you take all of your envy and your vengefulness and you channel them into sort of market activity and competition and striving uh, to outcompete others in the market, that's going to ultimately, you know, in a big, big, big scale sort of way be better for everyone you know there's there's quite sophisticated articulations of this position there's for instance Steven Pinker's very interesting book um, the better better angels of our nature there's a very interesting collection that he cites called um, uh, about the capitalist peace which argues that capitalist countries are less warlike than others I fundamentally disagree with them on many levels but they're they're sophisticated um, so what I try and say in the in the book on revenge capitalism is, you know, they say the kind of the neoliberal, uh, uh, the doctors of neoliberalism, uh, and I'm sure Steven Pinker wouldn't like to be identified that way, but nonetheless, um, would suggest to us that capitalism is the only system in which uh, revenge is banished to the borderlands, you know, and and we are we are given depictions of revenge at the borderlands of our civilization all the time, whether it's the revenge economy that occurs in, you know, incessant films about gangs or about prisons or about failed states where revenge rules or even about uh, poor neighborhoods in rich countries where, you know, uh, revenge is the order of the day. There's this sense that we're constantly afforded a story that makes us thankful to live in a society where revenge has been tamed by the law and also by capitalism. But my argument is, in fact, revenge has moved not to the border of capitalism. It's actually at the very core of capitalism. And we can observe this in the way that capitalism as a system, even though it's not a human, it doesn't have desires, it doesn't have an imagination per se, is still appears at least to be taking this kind of needless, warrantless, and ultimately self-destructive vengeance on the very people on whom it depends, which is to say humanity. So if you look at runaway climate change, for instance, if you look at the mass incarceration crisis in the United States, if you look even at the way that capitalism has rendered us all susceptible to these poverty-driven pandemics, as we were discussing before, there's a way in which this system seems not only to be kind of blindly seeking wealth, it seems to actually be vindictive in itself. And so I try and use this as a way of explaining not only the operations of capitalism today, but also then contextualizing the rise of far-right revenge politics, suggesting that it's only in a world where we've been habituated and trained by revenge capitalism that revenge politics can take on the kind of uh, power and persuasiveness that we see them with today. So that's sort of the first argument of the revenge book. The second argument of the revenge book is that there's been a movement at the same time, both through popular culture, uh, the dominant ideological institutions of society, schooling, religion, etc., to then defame and demonize the vengeance of the oppressed. 
Uh, and this has been going on throughout capitalist modernity. There has been this sense that uh, those who are oppressed are, are feared by those who are empowered as pathologically vengeful. So, you know, the classic example are the enslaved. Uh, and I use the example in the book of, uh, of the Haitian Revolution, which was incredibly violent. Uh, but it was violent in proportion to the violence that was sort of daily enacted on enslaved people. Um, so that when there was finally an uprising, it in certain senses needed to be as violent as it was to be successful. And that violence that was enacted by the, the slaved, enslaved people who freed themselves uh, was a reflection of the, uh, and even in some ways a, a tame reflection of the violence and vengefulness that they endured all the time. But this fear of the vengeful other, the fear of the vengeful slave, the fear of the vengeful oppressed person comes to animate systems of power and especially systems of power within capitalism that then sort of retroactively and preemptively justifies a revenge to keep them suppressed. We can't let up the, the thumb for one minute or else these people will come for our heads, this sort of logic. <laughs> and I argue that this is still ongoing um, and that this, this pathologization and demonization of the vengeance of the oppressed and fear of the vengeance of the oppressed continues to animate our political imaginations. And in fact, when we think about it, there are some forms of, let's not call them revenge, but I call them avenging, that are justified and legitimate. There are many, many people out there who are very rich today because they staffed uh, fossil fuel corporations that actively hid the evidence of the catastrophic impact of climate change that they were contributing to, who have gotten off scot-free and within the capitalist system in which we live, they will never be brought to justice. These people have directly have blood on the hands. They knew exactly what they were doing and they chose to put profit over people, to use that old adage. There are so many actors in our society who have knowingly, willingly, and with intent done incredible harm, who are today still being rewarded by this system. We could think of even of uh, Tony Blair and George W. Bush, just to name two examples, but across the political spectrum in many countries. We know that within this system, these people will not be brought to justice. There is a way in which we could ask for revenge. We could see these people on trial, we could see them executed, but I don't necessarily think that's particularly useful. Because as I've mentioned earlier in our conversation, the amazing and terrifying thing about capitalism is every single person within it is completely and almost immediately replaceable. You know, uh, they can, you can get a new president, you can get a new CEO, you can get a new PR flack tomorrow. There's a million people struggling to achieve that position and they'll all be equally heinous. So an avenging imaginary, as I describe it in this book, is, is, and this sort of thought experiment is to say, what would it mean to take a perspective, an abolitionist perspective, which is to say that we recognize that we not only need to take revenge on particular individuals who've caused such pain and such chaos, in fact, that revenge may be counterproductive in certain senses, but rather we need to avenge ourselves upon the system that so empowered, enabled, enriched them. We need to abolish those systems that gave them the ability to cause the harm in the first place, not so we can put a new ruler on the throne and give him the mace of the state, or not so we can elect a new CEO who is going to, you know, smile and cry and, you know, give someone a hug like Justin Trudeau. 
rather so that we can actually abolish the system that enabled the violence to take place in the first place, that enabled the revenge of the system itself. And so I think these two things in some way have to go together, the sense of understanding systems can be vengeful without anyone necessarily intending it or wanting it to be the, that case, and that we need to think through revenge much more carefully and avoid this kind of knee-jerk reaction to revenge, which I call reconciliophilia or the love of reconciliation. I agree that there has been a shift, especially with Trudeau, toward a more positive politics that is neutralizing, if not brutalizing, when you consider the response to Wet'suwet'en. Um, this is why the radical abolitionist perspective you've articulated is important. The avenging spirit is about attacking complacency. It also, com I think, complicates the kind of revenge politics we're seeing play out where you know, for example, the companies at the center of the opioids crisis are being publicly taken to task, you know, shamed, punished, and so on. But in that moment, still, you're you're right to point this out. Uh, in your, you know, you've spoken recently on this subject. There's a there's a piece missing, right? The racial justice perspective is missing. Um, and pain is, of course, not a thing we can just abolish, but we can radically reform or abolish the system by which we treat pain. And so, you know, I wanted to ask you, why don't we get a stronger sense of how important the racial justice perspective is to the whole picture of the opioids epidemic? Oh, I mean, it is such a, it's such an interesting and terrible and sad puzzle to think through. Um, uh, so let me, let me, approach it from a couple of different angles and try and bring them together. Um, the first angle to say is that, yes, as you say, it is a different epidemic, but it's also best compared to other drug scourges that have plagued the United States in, in recent memory. And these include, for instance, uh, the spread of crack cocaine um, and the spread of heroin within mostly black and Latinx communities in the United States over the past 40 years which essentially have been greeted by the American state, um, if not with indifference, then with a kind of sick glee, because essentially it, it neutralized many of the most radical elements of those communities um, and allowed for incredible levels of police repression. So in comparison to a moment where both sides of the mainstream American political spectrum are sort of competing with one another to show sympathy for what they imagine to be the largely white, rural, suburban uh, victim of the opioid epidemic today, which has so far claimed uh, at least half a million lives in the last decade. I mean, it's a huge number of people. In comparison to that sympathy, we have to compare it to what uh, occurred with very similar narcotics um, in other communities in the past. The second thing to say about it is perhaps that the reason why the face of this opioid epidemic is so white, or at least appears so white, and it should always be mentioned that many, many people of color in the United States also suffer opioid dependency. Uh, but the reason that it appears so white has a number of very important sociological factors. Um, one of them is that uh, white people typically, uh, who, who are at most high risk of addiction, which is to say, uh, people in deindustrialized or post-industrial landscapes like Appalachia or the Rust Belt or certain areas in Florida uh, and throughout the Midwest, uh, many of these folks 
uh, have or someone in their family has either some form of medical insurance that includes pharmaceutical care or they've been declared disabled uh, and therefore have access to certain forms of limited uh, state-funded pharmacare. And this has become the tendency that when white people uh, are essentially surplused or abandoned by the capitalist economy within the American racial capitalist milieu, they are declared to be sort of temporarily idled as disabled or have this kind of ennobling uh, notion that they have uh, essentially they're the victims of, of the capitalist system on some of them, which indeed they are. But that is in stark contrast then to most uh, black and Latinx communities where the vast majority of people who are made surplused by the capitalist system are declared to be parasitically dependent and therefore channeled into extremely punitive regimes of social welfare and social provisioning that you know go under the name of welfare or food stamps and which don't then come with pharmaceutical coverage and so uh, Purdue Pharma and other pharmaceutical companies specifically targeted white communities uh, in these areas because they knew that they could uh, get people hooked and that their pharmacare plans would essentially continue to pay for uh, this incredibly dangerous drug but then there's another aspect of it too, which is that it turns out the sociological and epidemiological evidence seems to strongly indicate that on the whole, doctors tended to disbelieve black patients' reports of pain relative to white and other ethnic patients. And this follows in a long tradition in the United States of really gruesome and horrific medical experiments on black people based on the idea and also to justify the idea that black people, because they were considered to be some, uh, in, by many, to be subhuman, that they didn't feel pain as intensely or in the same ways as non-black people, which is, you know, a horrific presumption of, to make uh, and one that has caused incredible undue hardship. So black patients who would go in presenting the same symptoms and with the same complaints as white patients would, oh, you know, all else being equal, much less frequently be prescribed prescription opioids and therefore not fall into dependency in the same way that these white patients did. The third thing to say about this epidemic in terms of revenge politics is there's a really interesting statistical correlation between uh, voters who in 2012 voted for Barack Obama and who in 2016 voted for Donald Trump in areas that had been sort of devastated by what get called deaths by despair, which includes opioid epidemic, uh, opioid overdoses, uh, suicides, and uh, deaths from alcohol and alcoholism. Uh, and it turned out that the, the jurisdictions where there were the highest uh, rate of deaths were also those most likely to vote, to have this swing in voting, um, which makes me feel that in a certain sense, there is a revanchist element to it, that this is a revenge of many people who have been surplused or made disposable by the capitalist system. But here's the important thing. There's a number of very interesting theories that suggest that for most black and racialized people in the United States, such abandonment and surplusing and disposability has been so long the norm that it doesn't generate the same kind of revanchist fervor as it does within white Americans who, or at least over the last few generations, of a kind of white supremacist Keynesian set of economic policies and their afterlives have come to expect that they deserve more. 
Um, and they do, in fact, deserve more. Everyone deserves more. But the revanchist flavor of the moment is one that recasts a resentment that should be targeting the capitalist system and its beneficiaries, and instead uses it to enable precisely the emblematization of the capitalist system and its beneficiaries, which is to say Donald Trump. You know, a t you know the most famous capitalist in America in certain in a certain way of thinking about it. The most, the one who most actively and hyperbolically and indeed clownishly emulates Homo economicus. So there's something very, very interesting in the tangled mess that the opioid epidemic uh, reveals to us. And ultimately, I think what it suggests is, is two things. The first is that when you build a society as the American society has been built on racism and on imperialism, this is the result, ultimately, as Aimé Césaire pointed out, right, you know, during, uh, in, the, in the 1940s already, colonialism rots out the heart of the colonizer, and that rot eventually reaches the center, and the, this, the empire descends into barbarism. Uh, and the second thing is that um, when you build a system where all social ills are recoded as individual pathologies. You essentially create a society that is, in a certain sense, blind to a certain kind of pain. We understand individual pain well. We understand that you can be in pain, and in fact, it's that pain that people were feeling, psychological pain and physical pain, that the prescription opioids were engineered to treat. But we don't have a language yet for describing sociological pain. That is to say, pain that we experience collectively. And that's essentially what so many people are feeling now, uh, including those in Rust Belt, Appalachia, and other places who voted for Donald Trump and are you know, suffering high rates of deaths from despair and opioid addiction, including everyone in a society that is fundamentally broken and destructive. And we need a new language to think through what pain is and how it can be experienced as a common phenomenon and not just something that affects the individual body and mind. And I think that's in some way imperative, and it's, it's why it's been so central to my thinking about revenge as well in this book. Thanks so much, Max, for sitting down to discuss these things with me. I don't feel as lost now uh, as I did. It's been a great pleasure. I think I, I feel the way a lot of people do, which is that things can't really continue in the tenuous way that they have been, uh, and that there is this moment now to pause and, and you know think through the system as it was operating. And, and you know, I think you're right to kind of encourage us to think collectively in this moment from maybe the, a position of self-isolation. We can, we can reflect on um, how to live better uh, in, in relationship to one another. So yeah, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. I'm very excited about your podcast project.